0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
1: So welcome to Episode 8 of Sleep Talk, our podcast about all things sleep. And welcome, Moira. Hello, everyone. And for this episode, we'd like to welcome Simon Frankel, who's joining us as a guest co-host.
2: Hi all, thanks for
1: having me back. So Simon, as you may remember from episode two, where Simon talked to us a bit about narcolepsy, is a sleep physician who works here in Melbourne and is one of the directors at Lung and Sleep Victoria and also works at Western Health. Thanks for joining us and I hope you're able to add some great insights for us. Yeah, pleasure to be back. So this podcast, we're going to be talking about the recent international sleep meeting, the Sleep 2016 meeting that was held in Denver. And it's the main international sleep conference for the year. So it's really a time of the year where those of us who work in the sleep field get a chance to reflect on our usual practice and think about sort of what we do, why we do it, connect with some of our colleagues and really sort of chew the fat. And while it's a US centric sort of meeting, it really is actually an international meeting. So we do get to catch up with people from all around the world. And there are around 6,000 delegates. So it's really a really pretty big meeting and a range of clinicians, researchers and scientists. It's also an opportunity for industry to launch new products, so always great for me to look at new gadgets. How did you find Denver this year, Simon?
2: Yeah, it was a fantastic conference as it always is, and uh, you know, as you said, I think for for a lot of us, it's just a way of you know recalibrating where we're at in terms of uh, you know the field of sleep medicine, seeing what others are doing, seeing what's new, ideally bringing that back with us, and uh, you know, folding it into our clinical practices on a day to day basis.
1: Yeah, and that's what we'll try and get into a bit in this episode is you know what for us were the main takeaways from the meeting, and what does that mean when we come back into our practices and reflect on you know what we do and. How we do
0: it, and I, I didn't get to go this year. In fact, I haven't been for many years. But it was really great to keep. I felt like I was there because I kept. I, I subscribed to your snapshots podcast, and it was really great. So congratulations on that. I really liked having this the summary. Is that five minutes or so was yeah. it? Five minutes? Yeah, thank you. So,
1: yeah, tried to keep it under five yeah. minutes. Made it most days.
0: But. It was really great.
1: Yeah, so what Moira's talking about is at the meeting I tried to, as a spin-off of this Sleep Talk podcast, launch uh snapshot. So really short, up-to-date little pieces on sleep, either from conferences or if I get to interview people as I sort of in my day-to-day work. So look out for those snapshots that may appear as part of the podcast feed. Now, we'll have this main podcast, a more in-depth podcast, obviously once a month, uh, but these snapshot shorter podcasts may well appear in the feed just intermittently as things come along as ways of keeping people updated. So a link for the podcast as well as the snapshots will be in the show notes. And we've also now got an app for the sleep talk podcast available in the Apple iOS store. And next month we'll be also have an app in the Android play store. So look out for that.
0: So what's been used? What's? topical this month in the world of sleep, besides the US conference that I missed
1: out on. So closer to home, the Australasian Sleep Association had a webinar last week on best practice in dental sleep medicine. And that was really great, really well put together, like most of the webinars have been. And talking about, you know, both for practicing dentists and also people who practice in sleep medicine, how to best use oral appliances to treat things like snoring and sleep apnea. So that's available via the Australasian Sleep Association uh, website and there'll be a link again in the show notes.
0: And and the good thing is we've got through the darkest days. Well, we're based in Melbourne, as people know, and we've had the winter solstice and we're now looking forward to spring, not far now until spring. Uh, And I always find that a really optimistic time. Don't you think we're getting light, more light? Apparently we're getting two minutes a day, also extra light, from the winter solstice till I don't know when that stops. <laughs> Whether it's till till the um, till the summer solstice, not sure about that. I don't yeah. know. So I've only got some yeah, no, that's on? true. It is. <laughs> Six months. Yeah, but I just think it's great. I think it's um, because there are people who a lot of people are still uh, quite affected by by light and dark, not only through their sleep but with their, with their mood. Um, and seasonal affective disorder is alive and well, in, even in Australia, and it, with our massive amount of light that we have. So it's nice to have got through that.
1: certainly doesn't feel like we've got that light in Melbourne at the moment. It's been pretty, pretty <laughs> dark and gloomy in the mornings. Yeah. So yeah, it is the time of year where a lot of people we see are using their light sources to help with mood as well as with their sleep.
0: What about in Sleep Hub? What's been happening
1: so, there's a couple of things I've been working on. So, I've been working on uh, some videos looking at oral appliances and how they're used in snoring and sleep apnea. So, they'll come up on Sleep Hub over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I've also written a post, because it is the winter season, on looking at screens and sleep, as well as updating a post on light therapy. So, the, again, I'll put the links for those. And I've been chipping away at trying to write about all the different components of cognitive and behavioural therapy. So, I've finally completed that series of posts on all the five
0: components of cognitive
1: behaviour. excellent
0: work by the way
1: thank you and as you know our colleague Giselle Withers um, who's really an expert in managing insomnia using psychology-based strategies but also mindfulness has been working on an online program and um, she's also produced some videos on relaxation and mindfulness that I've incorporated in some posts on Sleep Hub as well and shortly she'll be launching her own online mindfulness program
0: yeah I know it's great very exciting
1: So, the theme of this month's episode is to talk about updates from the recent Sleep 2016 meeting. And we won't be able to cover obviously everything from that meeting, but we'll try and group it into three main areas. So, we'll talk first about sleepiness and hypersomnia, uh, then get into a bit about insomnia, and then a bit about uh, circadian rhythms and body clock disorders. So to start off with, Simon, you know, one of the common things that we face in our clinical practice is in people who are presenting with sleepiness, really having trouble making an accurate diagnosis. You know, if someone doesn't clearly have narcolepsy with cataplexy, it's tough to really nail down the diagnosis. And then also not everyone responds to treatment. So where do we go? What's the current thinking on these things?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's an inherently difficult area. And, you know, as you said, narcolepsy with cataplexy, now known as, uh, you know, narcolepsy type one is the only one of these. Um, hypersomnia conditions for which we have, uh, you know, a, a biological marker, a test that we can do in terms of measuring uh, hypocretin levels in the cerebrospinal fluid. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, even that at the moment isn't a commercially available test. Mm-hmm. So what we're left for with the, with the other conditions is a combination of uh, subjective assessment of a uh, patient's description of their of their issues and testing in the form of vigilance testing and multiple sleep latency test. And, you know, there are inherent flaws with both of those assessments. So it makes accurate diagnosis difficult. And I think because of that,
1: treatment is sometimes flawed. Yeah. And sometimes I I struggle a bit with trying to make an accurate diagnosis for people and trying to, the language I'll often use with people is, you know, use terms like provisional diagnosis, working diagnosis, a framework that we'll use to move forward, trying to, in some respects, be a bit honest about the fact that we're not perfect in, in giving labels. These yeah, things. and I think just in general, as clinicians, we we
2: try and sort of compartmentalise things a bit too much. You know, we want someone to describe you know, a specific symptom of you know, be it hypers- hypersomnolence or tiredness or lethargy. You know, when in reality, these these constructs aren't mutually exclusive, and so I think that you know that shunting someone down a particular pathway
1: because they use certain language is is probably to the patient's detriment. And you know, sometimes I'll fall back on them multiple sleep latency test and think, you know, okay, that's got a short mean sleep latency, therefore, okay, definitely got a hypersomnia here. And, you know, some of the data that was presented at the meeting, so one of the psychiatrists talking about the fact that 25% of people with depression and psychiatric problems have a shortened mean sleep latency on a multiple sleep latency test, you know, it just makes it tough absolutely you
2: know we we know about this the bidirectional relationship between um, mood disturbances and, and hypersomnia and i, I think you know, other data presented showed that that an equivalent number of people with you know with hypersomnolence as a as a symptom actually have significant mood disturbance as well so and this is something that we you know, that we struggle with clinicians a lot is trying to sort of t- tease them apart. You know, I was quite relieved to hear that a very experienced psychiatrist says that it's really almost impossible to do so and that we need to be treating people with these conditions largely on the basis of symptoms rather than trying to specifically categorize them if it's too difficult
1: to do so. Yeah, and I found that reassuring too. You know, you essentially have all the world experts in the area in the same room and everyone saying, We struggle with this. You know, we try as best we can but we can't manage it and we can't manage to corral everybody into a perfect diagnosis. And one of the things I see online or I've sort of seen over the last year or two is sometimes in the online space, people with idiopathic hypersomnia, people who've got it, have been very careful about this is what it is, this is what it must be, and this is my diagnosis, and are very wedded to that. Unfortunately, I don't think it's that clear cut and I think we sometimes try and believe in that structure a bit more than what, what, it really, what really we should be.
0: And can it morph into different things at different times? Like could it be idiopathic hypersomnia and develop into a narcolepsy diagnosis at another stage? Like is, or is it not, um, doesn't progress in that way? Is it, so, is it mutually exclusive, it's one or the other?
1: Well, that's a great question, Moira. I can't can't answer it. I've absolutely got people who at one point in time, if I look at the symptom list of idiopathic hypersomnia, they Mm. fit better in that box. Mm. And at another point in time, Mm. if I look at the symptom list of narcolepsy without cataplexy or narcolepsy type 2, they fit better in that box Mm. and will move between those sort of boxes. Does that mean they're developing a different disorder? Probably not. Mm. But it's probably symptoms of something that's. It's just changing. Uh, And I think that,
2: no, I think that sometimes there is an evolution. You know, if you, if we Mm -hmm. see some of these narcoleptic people in particular presenting early, they might, you know, have hypersomnolence as a, as a presenting condition. And as you get to know them over the years and. Potentially, as hypercretin levels drop, other symptoms develop. And so, uh, you know, it comes back to what you were saying before about it being a provisional diagnosis. This is a, a work in progress, and, you know, we work through it together,
1: basically, as things uh, ensue over the years. Yeah, and it was interesting for me too. The, one of those sessions we both went to was to hear the team from Emory talk about their diagnostic workup that they do for people with hypersomnia, And even in they do CSF orexin or hypocretin, and they look for the GABA analog in CSF, even with those tools, they still struggle to tease these things apart. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, I think some of the data they presented as well just added to the concept that the you know the multiple sleep latency test is is a flawed test and doesn't necessarily need to be the be all and end all positive or negative.
1: Um, and I, I think that's important to you know to remember when we're treating patients. So I mean, we talked a little bit about the multiple sleep latency as a measure and the multiple sleep latency test. What actually is that?
2: Yeah, so the, the multiple sleep latency test, or it was abbreviated MSLT, is currently the gold standard test that we have for uh, measuring sleep propensity, essentially. So what we do is pay, bring people into a sleep laboratory overnight. Uh, su- subject them to a, a, a routine overnight sleep study and for the next day keep them in the sleep laboratory and on four or five opportunities during the day every couple of hours they're asked to get back into bed and to try and fall asleep and with the uh, leads that we've got measuring brain activity we're able to measure how quickly they're able to initiate sleep and there are normative values for this and we use uh Cut-off values to try and work out whether people do have objective evidence of um, of hypersomnolence or increased sleep sleep propensity. Yeah, so
1: if people have either got sleepiness and go and seek professional help, that's often a test that we'll order. But as we've talked about, it's got its strengths and weaknesses, and we think of it as our gold standard because it's the best thing we've got. But it's far from that when we actually take a step back and really try to evaluate it. Particularly getting back to what you were saying before about
2: that meta-analysis that was published looking at the results of this test in, in people with mood disturbances. And historically, we'd use this as the arbitrator as to whether the, the sleepiness was due to, uh, you know, an organic problem and a, a disorder of excessive sleepiness or whether it was just a manifestation of uh, of their mood disturbance and what, what these results show is that
1: essentially we can't be relying on it for that purpose. So We've talked a bit about the diagnostic challenges, but then what about treatment options? So we see a lot of people who've been on the standard things we have available, dexamphetamine, modafinil, methylphenidate or Ritalin, um, but don't respond to those. So what are the options that were discussed beyond that? Yeah, and it's it's actually much more of a
2: common problem that I'd initially realised. Certainly the the Emory data would indicate that 15 to 20% of people treated for these conditions um, experience lack of efficacy with, with those initial treatment strategies. And so there's quite a lot of work going into looking at alternatives. One of the things that I found interesting in this meeting is that there's sort of a bit of a paradigm shift, at least in my mind, that Initially, I'd thought of these conditions as being an absence of wakefulness. And so a lot of the medications that we had were, were trying to push the accelerator harder on wakefulness. What a number of the, the, the groups are doing now are, are looking at medications that are Reducing sleepiness, so sort of coming at it from a different therapeutic um, aspect. One of the one of the things that they presented was some data on a, a medication called flumazenil. Uh, historically, has been used to in a clinical setting to reverse the effects of um, sedating agents called benzodiazepines. But they had actually uh, the Emory group have used this in a cohort. I think it's about one hundred and fifty patients with various forms of excessive sleepiness, had it compounded in either a topical lotion form or as a lozenger, uh, showing uh, improved sleepiness scores in um, in over 60% of their patients. So it sort of gives a flavour, I
1: think, of where, where people are thinking future treatment strategies might be. Yeah, I really like that analogy. Um, of, you know, take the foot off the accelerator. I was trying to explain it to somebody today and saying, you know, that's what we've been looking at is, you know, put the foot on the accelerator, but really we've got to take the foot off the brake as a better analogy. And that's that sort of switch in in target. The other interesting thing for me about flimazanil, you know, as I was talking about, it wasn't just in people with idiopathic hypersomnia, it was any manner of causes of sleepiness that haven't responded to other treatments, which then goes against that whole thing we were thinking a couple of years back where this GABA analogue in CSF was the marker of idiopathic hypersomnia and therefore it was going to be idiopathic hypersomnia where people Responded. That doesn't seem to be specific for that particular condition.
2: No, but they, I mean they're still interested in looking at it, and I think they're they're going to be studying a group of uh, patients with residual sleepiness after treatment for sleep apnea, looking for the same analogue in in that group. So it'll be interesting to see what 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 comes of that. But it's certainly a diverse group of people who, with our current classification systems, are probably not adequately served by the classification. What about clarithromycin? Was there any more data on that? Yeah, so is obviously used in this condition. Um, I hadn't previously been aware of it, but it, uh, it's a partial antagonist of, um, at, at the GABA receptor. It blocks the effects of, of, GABA. Uh, there was data published in 2015, a placebo crossover trial, um, using clorithromycin, where they did show symptomatic improvements in sleepiness, patients taking this. Uh, did vigilance testing in the form of a psychomotor vigilance test. Um, there was no difference in performance in that test compared with placebo. It's hard to know what to make of it. Uh, you know, I think they used very high doses. There was a, quite a high side effect rate. Um, so, although it was placebo trial, it might have been a bit unblinded in that people perhaps were knowing when they were taking the active substance. And certainly, my clinical experience with it, I've not had great joy. Uh, what about you, Dave?
1: Yeah, sim- similar experience. I've had a couple of uh, short term wins, but no real long term wins with clarithromycin. Certainly since coming back from Denver, I've started a couple of people on clarithromycin again, now having sort of thinking about things in a slightly different way, but do wonder about whether I'm using that as a sort of a low risk trial of that concept whilst thinking about the practical things of how might I trial them on flamazanil and how might I get the flamazanil working in a practical sense.
0: Mm. And what about Xyrem? Um, I'm sure that there would have been a fairly hot topic. There'd be lots of information, lots of discussion around the drug Xyrem.
1: Yeah, there's a reasonable amount. So Xyrem's pretty well established, particularly in the US, as a narcolepsy treatment. Mm. But what, some of the interesting data about Xyrim was looking at its use in idiopathic hypersomnia, which is something we haven't really used so much. You know, a lot of it's about logistics and cost. But some data out of Paris showed that in people with idiopathic hypersomnia, a significant proportion actually got a reduction in sleepiness with Xyrem or sodium oxybate. Uh, And interestingly, it seemed to work pretty well on sleep inertia, which can be one of the really troublesome symptoms for people with any of the hypersomnias. That sense of just can't wake up to an alarm or if Mm -hmm. you do wake up, just back asleep again and just can't get going. And I think what we found, what we saw in that data as well, is
2: that they were, they, were, they were generally getting by on sort of what we would consider to be fairly low doses. So it was reasonably well tolerated and, you know, some issues in terms of the, I think, the patient selection in that group. But what it's done is it, it's, it's filled some of the void that previously existed in terms of there being really an absence of literature about whether, whether you could use something like sodium oxybate in, in idiopathic hypersomnia. And for me, at least, I think it's just given me a little bit of confidence that probably going to be doing no significant harm with it, at least on the basis of that data. Another drug that we've been hearing about, at least in the narcolepsy field, is a drug that's been around for a few years now, JZP110. Um,
1: what, what's your understanding of the literature about that? Yeah, so some of the data has already been published. There's been a small study of about 33 patients published, but they also presented data from another study with 93 people. And so a total now of about 120 people with sleepiness, most with narcolepsy, treated with JZP110. And it's a drug under development by Jazz Pharmaceuticals. It's both a dual uh, dopamine and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. And they showed that it had a significant effect on the mean sleep latency on a slightly different test, the maintenance of wakefulness test. And that's a test where we measure, again, during the day, put people in a dark room, but measure how long they can stay awake. For. And drugs like modafinil, on average, keep people awake in that test for about two and a half minutes longer. Dexamphetamine, about five and a half minutes longer. But the data from JZP was showing about 8.9 minutes longer. So at least in that very preliminary sort of data, showing it's at least effective as what we've got already and may actually be more effective than what we've got already. So on the basis of that, they're actually moving on to bigger phase three clinical trials. And there was a large trial started in mid 2015 that will uh, be published hopefully towards the end of 2016. So we'll get a feel for where that sits and how that may be a useful agent in the future. And there
2: seem to be sort of recurrent themes in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of
1: these uh, drugs act on
2: receptors in the brain that, are, that appear to be very important in the modulation of sleep and wake with dopamine and or adrenaline. And I, I think that, you know, they all must you know, act on them in different ways. And the more of these that are developed, I think it just increases, you know, what we have in the cupboard in terms of, you know, offerings for patients with disorders of hypersomnolence.
0: And what about the non-drug strategies, dare I ask? (laughs) I'm sure it sounds like there's – I'm sure there was some discussion about non-pharmacological approaches and treatment of other parts of –
1: Narcolepsy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really nice session on behavioural sleep medicine as a postgraduate course on one of the afternoons. And there was a session by Jason Ong, who has been at Rush University and going to Northwestern University, on a behavioural therapy for narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. And in talking to him, it's not so much about napping, though that's clearly part of the strategy, but actually building on the work that he did and we collaborated with him on looking at mindfulness-based therapies for insomnia and trying to build on that as a psychology-based and behavioural-based treatment for narcolepsy. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Jason, and you'll hear what he has to say about that. So I'm with Jason Ong from Rush University. And Jason, we see a lot of people with narcolepsy, and often napping is the non-drug strategy. But outside of napping, what other behavioural strategies are available for narcolepsy?
3: Well, it's uh, really open. Uh, Right now it's not very well defined. Um, I think napping has received the most attention, um, does have some research evidence, but I think there's so many other areas where behavioral sleep medicine can help people with uh, hypersomnia, with uh, narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, I think one of the biggest areas is to uh, give them some ways to help cope with chronic sleepiness, cope with their symptoms. And if you look at the treatment literature, there's really nothing about that. treat their symptoms, their daytime sleepiness. Uh, for narcolepsy, if they have cataplexy, there are some medications targeting that. But we don't teach people how to live with narcolepsy. We don't teach people how to live with idiopathic hypersomnia. And I think in behavioral sleep medicine, one of the things that, uh, we're usually pretty good at is helping people cope with, uh, chronic illnesses. Um, uh, really, I should say behavioral medicine, you know, that's an area where we've been quite successful, whether it's coping with people who have cancer, um, chronic pain. So I think there's things that we can borrow from those areas to help people, uh, and improve their quality of life living with narcolepsy and uh, idiopathic hypersomnia. So if you're trying to design that type of program, what are the pieces
1: you put into it?
3: Yeah, so we're trying to do some things. Uh, I I would say one thing, for example, is uh, even if you're going to implement these regular NAPs, you also have to have a little bit of a cognitive intervention because most of us think that we are awake continuously for 14, 16 hours during the day. But if you split up your day, and, and I use the term Pomodoro technique because that actually comes from a time management strategy where you take large chunk of time and split it into smaller chunks of time, um, we might have to reconceptualize wakefulness. So helping people with narcolepsy say, look... Don't think about wakefulness as being 14 hours in a row. Think about it in smaller chunks, maybe four to six hours, followed by a scheduled nap, maybe another four to five hours, followed by another nap period. So breaking up the day that way, I think that's as much of a cognitive intervention as it is a behavioral intervention, Uh, just to give an example. Great. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Um,
0: That sounds great, your discussion with Jason. Very, very exciting because, as you know, we're always looking for new ideas and particularly research, like some good data around the treatment, non-drug strategies around narcolepsy.
1: Yes, hopefully that'll be something that we will be able to work with Jason on uh, and I certainly had a chance to talk to him about that at the meeting.
0: And what about insomnia? I'm sure there was a massive um, amount of information and and talks around insomnia. What were some of the take-home messages from the meeting?
1: So one of the talks I really enjoyed was by Dan Bicey. He's a psychiatrist from the University of Pittsburgh. And I hope to have Dan on in a future podcast episode talking about healthy sleep and what healthy sleep actually means and new ways of thinking about that.
0: Yeah, well, he's a a veteran researcher and clinician in the sleep field, particularly insomnia. I remember being very impressed with him and he came to Sydney Many years ago, about 2008, 2009, he came and there was a bit of a think tank around, uh, you know, Australian, our approach to, to sleep disorders back then. And he was really useful, wasn't he? He was yeah. just thinks outside of the square and he, um, I remember talking to him about, this is pre the changes in the DSM, the new DSM-5, which is out the way we categorise daughters and insomnia is in that. I remember talking to him because it's always confused me or challenges me, the the depression or the anxiety and the insomnia, what, what comes first and how to tackle it. And so he must have been perhaps part of the, the thinking's now changed since about 2013 that it doesn't really matter which came first the chicken or the egg you just treat them both anyway and he's really clear about that back then and so that was that I remember being it was really quite enlightening for me and it changed the way i practice yeah so
1: some of the concepts that uh, daniel barsi talked about is and one that i think really resonates when i'm working with people is thinking of the brain as not just one on off switch in the way it regulates sleep and wake but thinking about it as multiple switches so the brain having some parts of the brain that switch off well during sleep and other parts of the brain that don't switch off well, and some parts of the brain that activate sleep well and other parts that don't activate sleep well. And when I think about how people describe sleep, that makes a lot of sense to me because people describe often sleep as feeling like they're sort of half awake, half asleep, or have some awareness of things going on and some Sometimes they'll describe that as light sleep or use lots of different terms to describe Mm. that. And this is something that a lot of the work that's been done at University of Pittsburgh, looking at imaging of the brain, looking at how various parts of the brain behave during sleep. And they've shown that one particular part of the brain called the default mode network in people with insomnia doesn't switch off particularly well during sleep. And that's part one of the networks involved in alertness and monitoring. Mm -hmm. And it can give rise to that feeling of, you know, I heard the slightest noise, I listen out for the slightest thing.
0: Yeah. Does it also account for the the amount of sleep state misperception that we see in terms of that people often, they really genuinely believe they're uh, awake when in fact the EEG shows that they're asleep? Absolutely. Would that that be part of that sort of explanation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you think of that concept of the brain not sleeping as a single unit Mm. but being multiple subunits some of which behave like they're awake some of which behave like they're asleep it then makes sense that it's hard to estimate was I really Mm. awake, was Mm. I really asleep because in actual fact you're sort of some bits are awake and some bits
0: are asleep It's very hard to gauge
1: And is it thought that that this is,
2: uh, this is an organic thing or is this, is this what we're seeing by sort of the concept of hyperarousal feeding into the whole process of insomnia? Are we just measuring hyperarousal with this?
1: Yeah, not sure. So that's the, the future work to be done. You know, what's the chicken and the egg? Is someone who's predisposed biologically to those systems not switching off well and therefore going to develop or at risk of developing insomnia in the future? Or is it someone who's got insomnia and that failure to switch off is just part of the whole package comes once they've evolved insomnia. we'll see. I think future research will tell.
0: So was there an overall change in, say, so guidelines or treatment for insomnia? Anything sort of startling? Yeah, so the
1: start, not so much startling, but a couple of the things. So, you know, as we've talked about a bit of a classification systems, so mm-hmm. the DSM-5 and International Classification of Sleep Disorders, the third edition, so we no longer subclassify insomnia.
0: In terms of primary and secondary. Yeah,
1: don't talk about primary and secondary or sleep onset and Mm. sleep maintenance. Mm. We just call it all chronic insomnia. You had symptoms for more than three months, it's chronic insomnia. But already there's talk now about we probably should be doing better phenotyping of Mm. insomnia. Yes, I agree.
0: And
1: and increasing evidence that there may well be one group that has objectively measured short amounts of sleep, so less than five hours, Mm that group may respond not so well to psychology-based treatments and good data to show they have an increased risk of some medical comorbidities like hypertension and diabetes. Mm. And so really a shift back to having to objectively measure sleep in people with insomnia to try and sort of work out what group they're in. Are they in this objective short sleep group or in a group that feels like they're not sleeping Enough, mm. but in actual fact, are sleeping a bit better than what it feels like, and are really distressed about that difference in how sleep feels and what it's actually like. Yeah,
0: well, that's exciting because there are a range. I mean, you know, you and I see, and so we see a lot of people with insomnia, and it's, it's you can't categorise them all in the one basket. There's a range of different experiences, and the different things are distressed by as well yeah. with. Um, you know, whether it's the hours of sleep, whether it's the quality of the sleep, it's how they feel when they're awake at night, it's how they feel during the day, what they ruminate about. It's a range of different things. And I, I look forward to a better sort of subclassifications so over the coming years.
2: I mean, do you think that we need to be striving to objectively measure sleep time in, in all of our insomnia patients?
1: Yes. Short answer.
0: But and not with PSG. Or... Uh, well, potentially.
1: So the, the studies that have been done to look at that risk of objectively measured sleep and uh, risk, or how you phenotype people, have all actually been PSG or sleep study studies. Mm. They've not been actigraphy-based studies. And there was a bit of a discussion actually about, okay, so if you need to objectively measure sleep, will actigraphy substitute? Will it be the sort of poor man's sort of option? Because in the US, you can't actually get reimbursed for doing a sleep study in someone with insomnia. And in mm-hmm. Australia, we're You know, know, we may even be heading towards that with some of the Medicare items under review. But actually, actigraphy may not be the answer because actigraphy in non-expert hands and even in expert hands is difficult. It's where do you set the thresholds? You set the thresholds or use one type of measurement protocol, you get one reading, different type of measurement protocol, you do another reading. And the data linking those sort of medical comorbidity risks are PSG data, not but there is
0: more instead of the full blown <clears throat> what we call the PSG, you know, the overnight polysomnogram, like massive amount of information, like twenty channels or sort of information. Surely, just a quick EEG and and looking at eyes, like a quick little portable set that in you know all the gadgets at all. It'll it'll be developed surely to be a. Well, that's already there, something.
1: as you know. We use in in our practice, we've got a device called the Sleep Profiler, which does exactly that. Yeah, so three night EEG recording at home. That's exactly how I use it in people with insomnia to get an objective measurement of sleep based on EEG, as I would in a PSG. It's not reimbursed under Medicare. It's not reimbursed in the US. It's something that makes sense to me technologies there, we actually use it. But we're the only practice in Australia that uses it in that way. So it's not something that's widely accepted or widely done, yet PSG is a bit more accessible.
0: Okay. What about um, circadian aspects, the theme of circadian rhythm disorders and and the like? What what were the highlights or take-home messages?
1: So a couple of highlights for me was the keynote lecture by Russell Foster Absolutely, he's a fantastic speaker mm. and did an amazing job of synthesising you know, almost 30 years of research into something that was just a very clear sort of message, yeah. um, teasing out really the role of the eye and how particular cells in the eye sense light and how that feeds into the brain and regulates sleep, but not just sleep and wake, but a whole lot of intrinsic body rhythms. One of the key quotes from Russell Foster that I really liked was was really talking to health professionals and saying, if you work with ophthalmologists or optometrists, you've got to get them to think about the eye as not just an organ for vision, but an organ for sleep and regulating a whole lot of body functions. Because very often we think about the eye as just that's the thing we see with, but it actually has a very important second function in regularising lots of internal functions.
0: Yeah. Well, he did one of the very first ever TED Talks from years ago when I didn't even know what a TED Talk was. I remember seeing him. It was very, it's really impressive. I think it was, I don't know, 2010 or before. It was a long time ago. He's probably got other ones since then, but I remember um, being very impressed with that.
1: Yeah. Great talk. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So as well as Russell Foster's work, he talked about it, and then also Jamie Zeitzer from Stanford University talked about this concept that we've been using light now for a number of years to shift the circadian phase, so using light to shift the timing of when people sleep. But even with using light, we're only able to shift things about one to two hours per 24 hours in the sort of real world or three to four hours per 24 hours in absolutely perfect laboratory conditions, And that's why jet lag takes some days to get over, like when you go to Denver and back for a couple of days. (laughs) So each of them were trying to work out, well, what are we doing wrong? Why can't we shift that clock 12 hours in 24 hours? Why can't we make those major shifts? And in some um, animal species, you can actually shift the clock 12 hours in 24 hours. So some of the work Jamie Zeitz has been doing is so, so looking at this concept of flashing light versus continuous light. They've been looking at different... Uh, response rates and flashing at different frequencies. But some of the work shows that a flash at every seven seconds and very short light flashes gives a much greater shift in the circadian phase, up to four times the shift in circadian phase, with overall less than one second of light compared to an hour of continuous light. So this concept of is flashing light going to do better than continuous light? And then they're looking at taking that technology and being able to administer the light flashes through the eyelid. So one of the things we suffer from in clinical practice is we're trying to expose people to light just after their core body temperature nadir, and often that's a time people are still asleep. So we've got to wake them up, get them to open their eyes, sit in front of a light. So their concept is potentially having an eye shade or something that might be very close to the eye and there's flashes of bright light through the eyelid while people are still asleep prior to them waking up to help suppress melatonin production and enable people to wake a bit more readily in the morning.
2: And I think one of the problems in this whole area, and I think it explains at least part of the reason why the laboratory circadian shifts work much better than they do clinically for us, is that they're able to measure circadian phase much better than we can in a clinical setting. And so as best we can, we sort of
1: guesstimate where they're at. The work that Jamie Zeitz is doing at Stanford uh, hopefully will lead to some products that we're able to use with people and something that's going to be helpful. And There is a company called Lumos Tech that's uh, hopefully going to commercialise this technology.
2: So one of the more interesting things about the conference is always the very large trade display and the hours that you can get lost with all the gadget that's there. Anything catch your eye this year?
1: Yeah, it's a bit disappointing, actually. It's usually one of my favourite parts of the meeting, you know, looking around the back corners, all the little booths about some new gadget that's coming out. Unfortunately, there wasn't really that much. Yeah, one of the disappointments for me was how many oral appliances there were that are really just targeted to consumers. And that really doesn't solve a problem for me. In fact, it can actually create problems. Because if there are devices marketed directly to people who are snoring and they go and buy them and... Put them in their mouth without that expert input to help them adjust it properly and manage the temporomandibular joint. It can actually cause problems with pain. So I felt a little concerned about that. That really sort of direct to consumer push with a lot of the oral appliances. For me, the gadgetry that was actually more interesting were the two things. One of them I talked a little bit about already is that concept of flashing lights. Uh, that's under development that may come out of that Stanford research. So, you know, although that wasn't a product at the trade display, that was one of the really interesting things. And again, it wasn't at the trade display, but a product that was talked about is something that's just been FDA approved as a treatment for insomnia, a device that cools your forehead. Now, how does a device that cools your forehead help you sleep? So it comes back to that concept from the University of Pittsburgh about the different areas of the brain um, turning off, not turning on, not turning off, you know, that type of concept. And it turns out if you cool the front of the brain, which is the, some of the um, prefrontal cortex, it can help in reducing the temperature in the prefrontal cortex that has been shown to make it quicker for people to get to sleep. So, you know, an FDA-approved device that hopefully will come to market in 2017.
0: And can I ask both of you, overall, I guess, if, with the meeting, it sounds exciting, sounds full of great stimulation and new information, but what changes, if anything... What would you make to your practice, like since you've been back, you know since following the meeting, like the rest of this year, any changes you think you would make?
2: I think the my my take-home messages would probably be related to some of the information I gleaned about the hypersomnias. In particular the, generalised struggle that people and clinicians experience in terms of dealing with patients who have combined hypersomnia and mood disturbance, uh, and perhaps some of the ways that I'll approach those patients in in collaboration with psychiatry colleagues. Uh, and also just the conceptual change of, of perhaps seeing some of these disorders of hypersomnia as perhaps being more of an issue of excessive sleepiness, sleep drive, rather than less or you know, not enough wake drive and perhaps modulate my, you know, treatment strategies accordingly, perhaps try and, you know, things like
1: flumazenil you know, if we can find a com- you know, compounding pharmacy, it'll make it for us. Yeah, and I'd echo exactly those same things, Simon. You know, that's really what I come home thinking about. So to just talk about a couple of different points then, you know, for the insomnia area, it really does reinforce to me that swing back to in managing insomnia, getting some physiological objective measurements about sleep so be that via sleep study or be it via a different type of device, but something that can get a good quality measurement of sleep to help guide subtyping of insomnia and, and therefore treatment. And I think that's also a very uh, helpful
2: tool in engaging patients in, in diagnosis and therapy as well. And often you find,
1: Moira, in the work you do, having some objective measurement of sleep is a nice starting point or a talking point in some of the psychology Oh, definitely.
0: Therapy. I think it's great. I think if there was readily accessible objective data, it would be very, very useful for for my work, um, for, yeah, for the for the patients basically, but for us to work collaborative together and um, I think it would be really enlightening.
1: So if you're looking for more information about the sleep meeting in Denver, the website sleepmeeting.org and I'll put the link in the show notes. You can actually purchase course notes for all the postgraduate courses uh, from the website. You can also listen to the daily meeting highlights that, as Moira said, I I tried to publish at the end of each day of the conference as snapshots or short versions of this particular podcast, and you can get those by subscribing to the Sleep Talk podcast, either via iTunes or via the app in the iOS store.
0: We've come to the part of the podcast where we have a clinical tip or a clinical pearl of the month. What's the clinical pearl of the month, Dave, according to you?
1: Yeah, well, I was struggling with this and thinking, you know, what am I going to talk about? But I saw someone today that really reinforced for me the point I wanted to make today is if you using a particular treatment, in this case it was for someone who's got sleepiness during the day and a form of hypersomnia, if it's not working as well as what you want it to work, don't just keep pushing the same treatment harder and harder. The specific example was use of a medication to help people stay awake, and someone on about four times the maximum dose I would ever use, and still feeling it's not working particularly well. And for me, that's really a bit of a flag to, hey, let's think about something else. Let's think about a slightly different yeah. approach. Doesn't mean I've got the answers and doesn't mean it's easy, but if something's not working, yeah, yeah. maybe step back and try something else. Well,
0: it sounds like the old. Cliché, well, you know, don't keep hitting, hitting your head against a brick wall, I guess. You can't, you can't keep doing it. Have a different approach. Have a look at it from a different way.
1: So, so Moira, what's been your pick for this month?
0: Well, I saw a, a product. It was actually coming out of the USA and it was for sleep and it was to do with narcolepsy and, as you know, it's a, a subject close to my heart. And it was a bit of a human interest story rather than I'm not into gadgets like you are. And I'm not necessarily looking for the next thing coming off the market. But I I was interested in this product because it was um, a a man in the USA who's a professor of um, engineering, I think, in Colorado. Um, And his name is Michael Larson. And his daughter, when she was 17, was diagnosed with narcolepsy. Hmm. And like most families, that sort of hit them for six. They didn't know anything about narcolepsy, about sleep disorders, what it all is. And he's really shocked at, um, I don't know what drug she was on, but most of the pretty heavy-duty, scary kind of drugs um, that were prescribed and probably, you know, if, uh, well-meaning, a good, you know, physician was probably within the standard protocol. But he was quite concerned about that and thought, I'm going to just gonna decide I'm going to fix her sleep or help her to get better quality sleep without these drugs and came up with this idea of a, a sleep monitoring device that's known as the, the, the Sleep Shepherd which is I guess thinking about looking after you at night, at the shepherd, you know, watching over you. Not quite sure of what that's all about. But um so I was just was interested in that from a just a human interest story about, you know, the the dad just I know from a psychosocial point of view how helpless family members feel. And if you're an engineering professor and you make products and that's what you do for a living. So but I'd imagine you've heard about this device.
1: Yeah, well, funnily enough I, I didn't know any of that backstory yeah but actually that's really that's really interesting and often the best innovation comes out of that passion you know their passion mm-hmm. projects about things people are passionate about now I of course I saw it on Kickstarter <laughs> so I saw the Sleep Shepherd blue the Bluetooth version of the Sleep Shepherd on Kickstarter recently and bought it so that's my pick of the month is, is Great. as well the Sleep <laughs> Shepherd blue but buying it for the tech reason I didn't know any of the yeah. back <laughs> the,
0: <laughs> the nice the nice Warm and fuzzy part of the story, so maybe you can we can talk about it at another future podcast to see what you think about it because I'd imagine that a lot of these products don't necessarily have the data or the randomized controlled trials or, or the things that we might be looking for 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 using something. But at least you can give us some anecdotal data when it if you yeah so when, you it, bought it. when it
1: arrives I'll have a play with it and then report back and do a bit of a product review.
0: Great. So what do we need to look out for? What are, what's coming up in our world of sleep?
1: Yeah, so for those of us in Australasia, our annual scientific meeting is coming up. So that'll be in Adelaide and between the 20th and 22nd of October. So registrations for that meeting are now open and I'll put the link in the show notes. And for next month, the theme of our podcast is going to be teens and screens. So we see a lot of people in our practice uh, with adolescents or teenagers who are having trouble with sleep and also others who are having trouble with sleep because of the impact of light from screens. So we'll try and talk a bit about that.
0: Great. I was going to say it's not just teens and screens. I think it's a, in my household, for instance, um, I have teenagers and they are often lecturing their parents about technology and, and that sort of stuff. I think we can. it's good to start with teens, get better habits, because our generation, it just sort of hit us out of the blue. We haven't necessarily had much education around screens and sleep. Um, but it's really great. We can start with this the younger generation and get the, get it right from the start.
1: So thanks for listening, and thanks very much, Simon, for joining us on this episode. Thanks yeah. for having me yeah, back.
0: Thanks, Simon. It's good to have you
1: and really valuable contributions, and I'm sure we'll have you in help us out with future episodes lovely thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast if you like the podcast remember to subscribe via itunes or the app via the ios store and write us a review on itunes
0: this podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professionals advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition